morning we're in Acts, the very end of chapter 22. We're going to go through chapter 23, verse 35. We'll cover most of chapter 23. And it's, uh, it's been a good passage. It's lots of, uh, lots of verses to cover, but, but we've boiled it down to a few points that we're going to look at this morning. And as I thought after I did the study, what the... The theme that really popped out in all of it was the Lord by my side as the Lord stood with Paul during this most difficult trial he was in. So we're going to consider first the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish council and their habit of unbelief, which is a hard point to consider. It's a hard truth in Scripture to look at, but it's one that's needed for us to be balanced in our understanding of the Lord's dealing with people. We're going to consider Paul's humility, his obedience, and his wisdom, and how he dealt with them. And then his appeal and uh, being sent down to Felix for a proper hearing. And then last of all, the main point, Paul the heretic, Paul the prisoner, Paul the beloved of the Lord. Okay? Let's start. The Sanhedrin, habit of unbelief. If you will, read with me in Acts 22, beginning in verse 30. On the next day... This is the tribune, the Roman tribune, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews. He unbound Paul and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel did speak to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and to bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink, till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath, to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you along with the council give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more accurately. And we are ready to kill him before he comes. We'll stop there and we'll finish the rest here in a minute. 
So you remember last week, Paul had stood on the, the steps of the Roman barracks before he was taken inside, and he asked the tribune, can I speak to this mob that just tried to kill me? An astonishing request, no doubt. But the tribune led him, and, and Paul began to address his brothers in Hebrew and spoke to them his testimony, what God had sovereignly done and interjected into his life. He wasn't looking to become a Christian. He was looking to kill Christians. But God intervened. He wasn't looking for that. And the whole time, Paul gives his testimony. He, he has witnesses. He has the pedigree to back all this up. But it's once he gets to the, the point that Jesus said, Paul, I'm going to send you away from the Jews in Jerusalem to the Gentiles. Once they heard the word Gentiles, they became enraged again and tried to kill Paul all over again. And so the, the Roman soldier took Paul in, rescued Paul out of the mob. And he wasn't particularly favorable of Paul yet. He was going to flog Paul. The same flogging that Jesus would have incurred. But Paul said, it's not right for you to flog a Roman citizen and one who's uncondemned at that. So he let him go. That's where we pick up our story on the next day. The tribune still wanted to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews. He had been unable at that point to ascertain any reason for their hatred for Paul. What's sad to me is, is the Roman soldier, the tribune, calls the Sanhedrin. That was the body of ruling Jews. It was composed of Pharisees as well as Sadducees. And as we read, they disagreed doctrinally and sharply disagreed doctrinally. We'll get to that in a minute. But that's what the Sanhedrin was. That's who the tribune called together. And he takes Paul and he puts Paul in the midst of them so that they can talk to him. Find out what's going on. But what's sad is, as we've read, this is now the fifth time the Sanhedrin, the body of ruling Jews, has been addressed. And it's the fifth time they've rejected the claims of the gospel. Up here on the slide, you see the first time was with Jesus' own testimony, back in Mark 14. When we started Acts, we saw Peter and John rejected in Acts 4. They brought Peter and John before him after beating them and imprisoning them. They rejected Peter and John's testimony of Christ. Then they rejected all the apostles as all the apostles were brought before the Sanhedrin to testify in Acts chapter 5. The next time was Stephen when he disputed and probably with Paul we looked at. Paul was probably a member of this group. They rejected Stephen's testimony about Christ and killed him. And now here with Paul in Acts 23. This is the fifth time this group has heard the claims of the gospel. And it is the fifth time they've rejected. And what's more, you see a progression happening. With each rejection, their heart gets harder and they become more violent toward it. It's important to notice because one of my main points is that no one can stay neutral once you hear the gospel. You must respond. God demands it. You will either respond in faith and receive it, or you will harden your heart and reject it. In this case, they sealed their fate eternally. Not long after, Jerusalem will be leveled, the temple will be leveled by the Romans, and their whole religious system of worship in 70 AD would be shut down as it is to this day. So they sealed their fate eternally. 
I want to talk about this point because this is the hardest point for us to understand biblically. It's one that's not at all favorable to people who don't know the Lord. They don't like it. But when once the gospel has entered your hearing, you cannot remain neutral. Jesus said it this way. I've quoted up there. You are either for me or you against me. You either gather or you scatter. There's no neutrality when it comes to the gospel. But is it God's desire for them to perish? No, not at all. Ezekiel 18 says this, God does not delight in the death of the wicked. Rather, he would that they would turn and live. That's God's desire. Now, does he know not all well? Absolutely. But it's not his wish. 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9 is one of my favorite passages where Peter brings out those who are mocking the coming of the Lord. All things are continuing as they have for ages. And Peter says, it's, it's not that God's forgot his promise that he's coming back in judgment. God doesn't forget that. But he's patient. He's delaying. Why? Peter says he's not wishing that any perish, but that all would reach repentance. That phrase there is so important to understand. It literally gives this idea that God gives space for all to repent. He gives an allotted amount of time for everybody to repent. He knows they won't, but nonetheless, he gives space for them too. Let me illustrate it with an example you'll be familiar with. Pharaoh in the Old Testament. Before Moses ever went back into Egypt, he warned Moses, Hey, I'm sending you to Moses, and you're going to tell him, let my people go. But he's going to reject you, and I'll bring great judgments on him. So God knew the beginning from the end. He still gave Pharaoh opportunity, did he not? Time after time after time after time. And what did Pharaoh do? Sometimes the text says Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then it will say, and then God hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart, then God hardened his heart. Until eventually it gets to the last plague. And with Pharaoh's utter refusal to obey God and submit to God, literally the text says that God fixed him in that condition. Judgment was unavoidable at that point. That's a scary and sobering truth. Because we as people, when God is... Uh, I can remember this. When I was coming under conviction, the Lord began to awaken me to the reality of my sinful state and my need for a Savior. I can remember this battle in the flesh in my heart of resisting God and not wanting to leave my sin and not, not wanting to submit to Him and not wanting to be identified fully with Christ. I still wanted my hand in the world and my hand with Christ. But these truths terrified me, and they should rightly terrify us. Christ is Lord, and we cannot serve two masters. You will either love the one and hate the other, or hate the one and love the other. If Christ is Lord, he wants all of you. And when we refuse, though God gives space for us to repent, when we refuse, there will be a fixed reality one day. Now I'll caution you. God is sovereign in salvation. But we don't know how much allotted space he gives. And so what do we do as a church? We give invitation. We give invitation. We give invitation. And in that, we'll trust God to call out those he chose. And so that's the balance we must maintain as a church. We don't know who God's elect are. So we give invitation to all. Those who respond will come to know as, hey, those are God's chosen. But we don't know it a priori. We don't know it beforehand. In this case, the Sanhedrin sealed their fate. It's a terrible, terrible reality to consider 
But we go on preaching, we go on pleading with men, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, we are ambassadors for Christ, as, as though Christ were making his appeal through us. We beg you, be reconciled to God. That's the attitude as a church we must maintain with the world, even in the face of constant hostility, constant rejection. We don't know how much time the Lord has allotted. That's why Paul would say this to the Ephesian church, if today you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. You have opportunity now if you hear his voice. Don't harden your heart. Moving on, I want to look at the Apostle Paul in this whole encounter. He's brought before the Sanhedrin by the Roman tribune. He sat down in front of them and looking at them intently, verse 1 says, which is a... Paul is just such a man to me. This is the same group who wants him dead. And he sits down before ever saying a word, and literally the word gives the indication he looks at all of them in the eyes. How many of you could face those who would want you killed with that courage? That's Paul. He looks intently at each one of them. I think, it's, I think partly to sear on their conscience what they're doing. Paul was uncondemned. There wasn't even a charge against him that could be justified. They want him dead, and he's going to burn his face on each one of their minds as he looks at them in the eye. He looks at them intently. He says this, brothers, again, what respect, what humility we see first and foremost in Paul. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all conscience up to this day. Now, I'll, I'll confess, I told Jill, interpreting Scripture is never easy. <laughs> It's hard work. I, and this isn't a main point like it's been in a few weeks past. I don't know what Paul means by this. I'm just going to be honest. Paul says, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. I don't know if he's referring to his life in Christ or his entire life. If he's referring to his entire life, I struggle with the idea that Paul had a good conscience as he's killing Christians. But I also know that the scripture teaches our conscience isn't the test for truth. It's simply a witness of what we believe is true. And so even if you take Muslims, for instance, when they're killing Christians, their conscience is clean. Why? Because their doctrine tells them that's what they need to do and they believed it. They've informed their conscience of lies and they live their life in connection with those lies. And so their conscience may or may not be afflicted when they're sinning. That's why it takes the Holy Spirit to awaken someone to the fact that you are not okay. Our conscience can deceive us. Our conscience scripture can be weak. It can be defiled. It can even be seared as with a hot iron, Paul gives the metaphor, to where we don't feel a thing. So Paul may be referring to his entire life, even his pre-Christian days, and, and said, you know, even when I was killing Christians, I thought I was doing God's will. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it at that. I don't know how to interpret that. Um, but since it's not a main point, I'm not going to dwell on it. I'll let you dwell on it. Leave that for you to chew on. But upon this statement, nonetheless, Ananias commanded Paul, or commanded those who stood by Paul to strike him on the mouth. Now notice it's a plurality. It's not one person. It's those who stood by Paul. So there's a plurality of people who struck Paul. The word strike is the same word used in chapter 21 that we looked at where they're trying to beat Paul to death. It's not a slap. They are pummeling Paul. 
It's the same word used of Jesus in Matthew 27 when he was on trial. And he testified, if I've done wrong, testify of the wrong. If I haven't done wrong, why are you striking me? It's the same word. And so it was a pummeling again by several people at the order of Ananias, the high priest. Paul responds to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. We're going to get to that in a minute. We're going to talk about what that statement is. But in response to Paul's statement, he points out his innocence. You're sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. In other words, the Jewish law itself forbid striking uncondemned people. Paul was an uncondemned man. And the high priest himself, who should have known this and did know this, yet contrary to it, orders Paul to be struck. It's the utter hypocrisy of the Jewish religion at that point. It's the hypocrisy Jesus pointed out constantly to his disciples. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. It's the thing we always, as Christians, need to be constant and vigilant against. But here's what I want to focus on at this point before I get to that statement. Verse 4, those who stood by Paul said this, Would you revile God's high priest? This word revile is a strong word. It's used here to mean revile, insult, reproach, abuse. In fact, in John 9, 28, the Pharisees reviled the man that, that Jesus healed who was born blind. You remember that? They started insulting him. You were born in sin. And here you're here teaching us. Paul used it in 1 Corinthians 4, this word, to, to denote the opposite of blessing someone. And then Peter uses the same word in 1 Peter 2.23 saying this, When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. In fact, Peter goes on to account, he's referring to the account of John 18 that I just referred to. When Jesus was struck, when Jesus was crucified, he never reviled in return. In fact, he prayed for them. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. So people have a hard time understanding what, was this wrong of Paul? My take is, as well as many other pastors, is yes, I believe this was Paul's sin. And that's, we've got to recognize Paul is not Jesus. He wasn't sinless. Even Paul confesses, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. Some people don't. Say, well, maybe it was because of Paul's bad eyesight at the time. He couldn't see well. Maybe it was because Paul had been separated from this council for over 20 years at this point. He didn't know who was the high priest. All in fine, but Paul himself confesses and submits to the word of God, quoting the very commandment they're referring to out of Exodus. He says this, It is written, You shall not speak evil or revile a ruler. It's out of Exodus 28. Or 22, 28, sorry. And so Paul, by, by quoting this scripture and confessing, he's submitting to the word of God. Again, I want to talk about this point. Very often, you can see either in your own life as a Christian, or maybe someone else, or maybe non-believers, if we're confronted by a statement in the word like that, and we have found ourselves to be living contrary to it, we can either harden our heart to it, we can resist it. We can get angry at it. Or we can submit to it. That's what Paul does here. He submits himself to the authority of God's word, confessing, you're right. 
The scripture says you shouldn't do that. Now, this is a trial because Ananias was no saint. Um, he was a very wicked, wicked high priest. Um, he was known, according to the Jews themselves, to be and use extreme violence to get what he wanted. He would also steal, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, he would steal regularly from the tithes that were given to the temple and supposed to go to the rest of the priests on duty. He would take their tithes for himself. In fact, in 66 AD, when the Jews revolted against the Romans, which led to the destruction of the temple, all that, one of the first people the nationalist Jews sought out to kill was Ananias, the former high priest. He wasn't high priest at the time. His term ended in 62 AD. In 66 AD, the Jewish nationalists killed him. That's how bad this man was. But nonetheless, he was in a position of authority, was he not? He was in a position that God commanded you respect the position. There's some application in there for us. It's a major application. We want leaders who are godly. We want leaders who lead in a right way. What happens when we get one who doesn't? Well, you submit. Now, if they're asking you to violate truth and righteousness, no, you don't. You suffer instead. But you honor the king, Peter would say. You pray for those in authority as being placed there by God. And pray as Proverbs says that God would direct the heart of the king where he would. So we are to submit to those in authority. We're to pray for them that we might lead a peaceful life, Paul would write to Timothy. It's the right way. And Paul himself expounded on that truth. And so... Paul's ignorance that Ananias' high priest was nonetheless no excuse for sin. When it was pointed out to him, he confessed. The word says, I shouldn't do that. But here's Paul's obedience. What he said to Ananias was still true, even if the heart with which he said it was not. He calls Ananias a whitewashed wall and says that God is going to strike you, and God did. Remember what Jesus said to Peter in the garden when Peter started whacking people's ears off? Peter, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. Ananias lived by the sword, and guess what? He died by the sword. So God did strike him. This whitewashed wall is a similar phrase to what Jesus used of the Pharisees when he called them whitewashed tombs. But it's more likely that Paul's referring to Ezekiel um, chapter 13. Verses 10 through 18. I'm not going to go read it. You can look it up. But it's more likely that that's what uh, Paul's referring to. It's a picture of hypocrisy is what it is. When Jesus used that phrase, whitewashed tomb, what they would do is they would cover tombs up and, and put this plaster, this whitewash over to make the tomb beautiful. And yet the reality is inside of there is dead people that stink, are rotting. It's full of bones. The outside looks great. But the reality of the inside is something altogether different. That's Ananias. Yes, he was in God's position of a high priest. Yes, he had all the ornamentation and respect and authority that a high priest would have. Yet he was a, he was a hypocrite. This is such a cutting truth. It exposes the heart of men. God sees the heart of people. And Paul could clearly see this man's hypocrisy. But it also taught Paul something. In verse 6, it says, Now when Paul perceived 
Now he knew at this point, with Ananias' reaction striking him in the face, pummeling him once again, there's no hope for Paul to get a fair trial. There's no hope for Paul. These Jewish leaders, who above all should have been righteous men and judged righteously, were not going to give Paul a fair shake. So he perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. He cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. And it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. It's not wrong for us today as much as possible to use legal means in order to gain a fair trial. There will come a day when that's probably taken away from us. And what do we do? We bear up under and we suffer for the truth nonetheless. But as public opinion turns against Christians and what we stand for, it's not wrong to appeal to every legal means that we have. In fact, in doing so, it will also be a testimony to those who are in legal authority of the rightness and wrongness of what they're doing. We're going to see that in a moment as well. The sad truth is, of all the people who are to be unbiased in truth, the Jews were to be and yet Paul could no longer appeal to them. And so he discerns an avenue by which he could gain a fair trial with Felix, we're going to see next. He knew the doctrinal divisions between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he says, I am a Pharisee, and I'm the son of Pharisees, and it's because of the resurrection that I'm on trial. All of it true. Now the Pharisees in the council probably didn't believe that it was Jesus who was raised from the dead, but the truth, Paul said, is nonetheless right. He was on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And that causes the division where the Pharisees rise up, saying in verse 9, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit and angel spoke to him? Verse 10, The dissension becomes so violent that the tribune, once again, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces, has to come in and rescue Paul out of there. In God's Providence, he's using Roman soldiers who hated Jews to save a Jew. <laughs> if you don't think God can turn the hearts of people who might hate you to unknowingly work for you, listen to this example. So Paul creates, through his statement here, this division, divides the council, and he's taken away. Nonetheless, we read earlier that verses 12 to 15 makes it clear. The Sadducees especially were not satisfied with that. They made a vow not to eat or to drink until Paul was dead. Now, once again, here's their hypocrisy because we know Paul lives at least another three years. I wonder if they were still keeping their vow. No. They wanted him dead. And they were not going to stop. Even with the Roman protection so Paul is going to be sent to Felix for a proper hearing. Verse 16 through the end of the chapter. Let's read it and then I'll get to my last point where I'll spend the rest of my time. Now the son, verse 16, of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune. For he has something to tell him. So the centurion took the boy and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? 
And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they've killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And here's the letter Claudius Lysias the tribune wrote to Felix. Verse 26, Claudius Lysias to His Excellency, the governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, he, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that Paul was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So I'm not going to focus much on that passage. It's, it's historical narrative giving you historical facts that speak for themselves. But I do want to talk about something that I see in this passage. Here we see the Lord working for Paul once again. Okay, And what an encouragement of faith it must have been to Paul. Paul's little nephew comes, exposes, exposes the plot of the Jews, tells the Roman tribune what's going on. And I think I see God softening the heart of this tribune in this passage. Follow it with me. And this is a beautiful point. We started our narrative with this tribune and Paul, and the connection being, Paul's being beaten by the crowd, and this tribune's looking down on the mob. The tribune, if you remember, thought that Paul was the Roman or Egyptian assassin leader. So he goes, gets Paul out of the mob, brings him into the barracks, and is probably about to kill Paul, thinking Paul was the Egyptian assassin. When Paul calmly and respectfully addresses this man in Greek, can I speak to the crowd? What a shock that must have been to the tribune when this man who's being beaten by that crowd then asks to speak to him. He lets him. He witnesses Paul's testimony. He sees everything that Paul's doing and saying. When he couldn't ascertain why Paul was being accused, he brings him in. He's about to flog Paul. And remember, that was a severe flogging. Could have killed Paul. And Paul again, once, once again, calmly tells this man, I'm a Roman citizen and I'm uncondemned. Is it lawful for you to do this? That statement, the tribune understood. Even by imprisoning Paul, he could have been severely punished. It was unlawful for him to bound any Roman citizen, let alone flog him. Any uncondemned Roman citizen. 
But what did Paul do? Did he react to this tribune in anger? No. Did he hold it against the tribune? No. Could he have legally? Yes. And the tribune knew it. It terrified him. Because he knew he was doing wrong. The next day, he creates another situation, says Paul from the Sanhedrin, listens and witnesses all the injustice and words that Paul told him. I think at this point, Paul's life and words are beginning to change his heart. Because he goes from wanting to rip Paul's back open to taking the nephew by the hand, listening to the boy, and then telling his soldiers, bring Paul safely to Felix. Here's the power, by the way, when you are willing to endure suffering and wrongdoing, you have no idea how it might be influencing someone else. It's a beautiful picture here. It's a beautiful picture of providence. This is why God calls us to endure suffering. Why? Because through it, he might be bringing others. I love this picture. That's all I want to say on this point. But think about it. Think about the power of a suffering Christian who, who endures it, who doesn't resist it, who speaks kindly to those who might be involved, who blesses and doesn't curse. How it changes the heart of those people. I think that's what's happening to this Roman tribune. But I want to get to my main point. Paul the heretic, Paul the prisoner, Paul beloved of the Lord. He's viewed as each one of those titles. He was viewed as a heretic by the Jews. The Romans called him Paul the prisoner in verse 18. And yet the Lord loves him. We're going to end our sermon with that one verse, verse 11. Following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Many points could be made about this, but I, I just wrote down several. First, that the Lord stood by him. But notice, it wasn't until Paul was in the trial. Please follow me. This is so important. Up to this point, the scripture tells us the Holy Spirit had been warning Paul. Chains and affliction. Afflictions awaiting. It was a severe test of Paul's faith, but Paul was willing to go forward still, right? And he did. And it's not until Paul is in the trial that the scripture tells us the Lord is standing up. Think back to the Old Testament, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Same thing. Nebuchadnezzar makes a statue and commands all people to worship him. Those who say, no, we worship God alone. They refuse to bow down. A severe test of faith for those men, was it not? Knowing that if they didn't bow down, you're going to be thrown into the furnace. Okay, then throw us in the furnace. They were willing to enter the trial, stand firm in faith, and go to the furnace, and they did. But it was in the furnace that they met the Lord in a new way. And the Lord stood with them. It's the same thing here. Most of us as Christians never know the Lord's comfort in this way. Why? Because we never allow ourselves to enter the trial. We never go into the trial. 
Paul's own testimony was this in 2 Timothy 4. In fact, at the very end of the chapter, some of the very last words Paul himself would ever say. Tells Timothy, at my first offense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Paul could say with confidence, it was in the trial, even when I was deserted, that's when the Lord showed up. The next night, the Lord stood with him. And his word was take courage. Paul, you've been faithful to testify about me in Jerusalem. You'll go to Rome and testify also. Be courageous. Don't stop preaching the truth. Though chains and afflictions are your lot, don't stop. I'm with you. Everyone else had deserted Paul, but the only one that mattered stood with him. This is striking, striking contrast to me. The Jews were offended at Paul's assertion that God had gone to the Gentiles. They wanted to kill him for it. They were like Samson, where they didn't know that God had left them. Striking verse in Samson's account, who woke up not knowing that the Spirit of God had departed. That's what happened to the Jews. We're God's chosen people. Yes, but God's left you because you have left him. Whereas Paul, on the other hand, in contrast, was forsaken by everyone except God. In the prison, we find Jesus standing with him. As I said just a minute ago, reminds me of the account in Daniel. This, to me, is the sweetest of truths to know. And it's a point where we as Christians must mature into, I would say. Where Christ calls us to go, Christ will also bind himself to be with us. So often we enter situations, and I'm talking about situations that are explicitly for the gospel. We will enter situations knowing that it might cost, and we'll back off. But if Christ calls us to go there, you can trust he is with you in it. He called Paul to go. Paul went, and Paul understood the Lord stood with me. I want to say this because I want to strengthen us in this. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 says this, Keep your life free from a love of money. Be content with what you have, for God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Literally, the first part of that passage, where it says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, the tense that it's written in the Greek, you could read it this way. I will never, no, never, no, never leave you or forsake you. Isaiah says it in a beautiful metaphor. I want to read it to you. Isaiah 49. Israel has just said in verse 14, God has forsaken us. They come under judgment. And here's the prophet Isaiah's response for the Lord. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even she may forget. Yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hand. I want to apply this for us today. 
Are you struggling with the daily grind of work, of kids, of relationships, of obligations, of finances? You fill in the blank. What right now is causing your heart to be troubled? And I want you to think of whatever that might be. And I want you to ask yourself, is God with me in this? Is God allowing this in my life for a reason? Hopefully you can answer yes to both. Think of Job. Was God with Job when he lost everything? Yes. Was God with Job when his kids perished? Yes. Did God allow it? Yes. He did. That's where the rub is for us. How could God allow this? Sometimes we never get an answer to that. Sometimes our answer is immediately known. One of the hardest truths for us to truly get grasp, let alone walk in, is that God allows bad things to happen to you. But God does not allow the storms of life without purpose or without reason. There is always reason for it, and there will always be good that he works from it, according to Romans 8.28. All things he causes to work together for good to those who are called, those who love him. See, God allows things to teach us faith, to purify us, to burn away the dross in our lives, to focus us more intently on the reality of his presence and provision, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego experienced, God was with them the whole time, as Paul experienced here. If you find yourself asking this question, God, why is this happening to me? Or questioning in a doubting way why God has allowed such and such trials you can name in your own life to happen. I want you to think about this. Can you say, God, what have you for me in this? Can you say that? What do you have for me in this, God? How can I be perfected in my worship and praise for you in this? That's why I sang that first song. I think the mature picture of a worshiping Christian is Job. He worshiped the Lord. He understood, shall we accept good from God and not evil? Blessed be his name in either case. That's a hard place to come to when it gets down to it. But that's a sign of mature worship. So here's the challenge. Pray that God brings about an attitude of worship that Job had. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Perhaps the reason that you might be struggling in your trial is because you need to learn the will of God in your life. What do I mean by that? Very simply, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Be thankful. In every circumstance, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. In your trial, have you ever stopped and said, thank you, God? That's the sign of maturity. If you're on the other side where you're kicking and resisting and nearly cursing God for it, you've got room to grow. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. In Christ Jesus for you. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 But I want to press deeper in this. I have a little time. And follow me please. Stay with me on this. There's a difference between simply the hardships of life. 
and then those hardships that are particular to kingdom work. Every single one of us will experience hardships in life. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's the death of a child. Maybe it's loss of financial stability. Whatever it might be, we all experience it. It's common to man. But there's a particular hardship that only Christians will face. It's called suffering for righteousness. And we must press deeper in this. Why does God, here's an answer for you. Why does God allow hardships in your life, your, your lower level life, as I'll call it, just the normal daily things? Because what he's trying to do is teach you faith so that when you engage in spiritual things, you'll have endurance. Do you see that? Let me illustrate it with two examples. When the children of Israel were brought out of Egypt from slavery, God took them through the wilderness. Why? To teach them faith. They've been in bondage, and what they needed to learn was trust God. What do we find them constantly doing? Grumbling, complaining, not trusting God. God, in Egypt, we had plenty of bread. God, in Egypt, we had plenty of water. Where are you taking us? They needed to learn faith. That's the lower level of life. We also must learn faith, even in the daily things of life. God, where are you going to provide for me? God, help me in this situation. David is the same example. When David goes to face Goliath, the reasoning of David was this. Hey, when I was a shepherd, there would be bears and wolves and lions attacking the sheep, and man, God would deliver those things into to my hand. He'll deliver this Philistine in my hand as well. You see the, the lower to the upper? He learned faith in the lower level of life, and it prepared him to engage in the spiritual battles he needed to, to engage in. Here's the point I want to make to us, church. As I listen to Christian music so often, as I look at my own life, as I engage with people, where we focus and where we bemoan and groan against the Lord is, is the suffering we're enduring on a lower level of life. It's the sicknesses, it's the financials, those are all real. But there's a noticeable absence in our life of suffering for the kingdom, which is the true gem of Christian maturity. And what Paul has gone through now, he's suffering on a lower level, physically, emotionally. But the higher level that he's suffering for is Paul, Jesus said, you've testified about me. Keep it up. Endure it. There's comfort for those who are in the trial. Your faith is tested. Obedience is displayed by the believer. And that's when the Lord meets you there. Jesus stood with him. So lifting up the drooping hands, Hebrews 12, 12 says, On the lower level of hardships, God is preparing you for true work. And on the upper level of hardships, take Paul's own comforting words out of Galatians. Do not lose heart while doing good, for in due season you'll reap a harvest. I hope you see this distinction. I don't want to downplay hardships on the lower level of life. They're preparing, prepping ground. But most of us never go past that. Never go past that. I want to end with this testimony. You've heard of Fanny Crosby. 
probably the most prolific hymn writer ever. I'm going to read this to you. Fanny Cr Francis Jane Crosby, it was Franny, Fanny Crosby, wrote more than 9,000 hymns. In fact, she wrote so many hymns that she was forced to use pen names, pseudonyms, because she was worried that the hymnals would be filled with only her hymns. It's a remarkable thing and story of Fanny Crosby. She was born in New York. She became ill within two months of her birth. And unfortunately, the family doctor was away, and so another man, pretending to be a certified doctor, treated her by prescribing hot mustard to be applied to her eyes. Her illness eventually went away, probably not because of his treatment, but his treatment left Fanny blind. A few months after that, the doctor disappeared, and a few months after that, Crosby's father died. Her mother was forced to find work as a maid to support the family, and consequently, Fanny was raised mostly by her Christian grandmother. The lower, lower level of life treated Fanny very, very bad from the beginning of her life. She had it hard. Her mother's work paid off, and shortly before Fanny's 15th birthday, she was sent to a house in New York that was an institute for the blind, where she would spend the next 23 years of her life, 12 years as a student and 11 years as a teacher. She initially indulged in her own poetry and was called upon to write verses for various occasions. The principal of the school asked her to avoid such quote-unquote distractions in favor of her general education saying this, we have no right to be vain in the presence of the owner and creator of all things. Here's one such poem that Fanny wrote. Oh, what a happy soul I am, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. While she enjoyed poetry, she zealously memorized the Bible. Take note of this. She memorized five chapters a week. Even as a child, she could recite Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, the Gospels, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and many Psalms, chapter and verse. Does that challenge you? She did not dwell in the hardships of her lower level. She excelled in the upper level. But here's a staggering encounter. A, a well-meaning yet ignorant preacher said this to her, I think it is a great pity that the master did not give you sight when he showered so many other gifts upon you. Well-meaning but ignorant. What's this pastor looking at? the hardship she's enduring on the lower level, which is where so many of us are at. Look at Fanny's response. Do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one petition, it would have been that I was born blind? Because when I get to heaven, 
the first face that I shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. That's a woman like Paul on this lower level of life where hardships and suffering are going to happen. Okay. I still will worship God. And she pressed on. She, like Paul, like Job, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all the saints who've gone before us victoriously have found out the great truth that the Lord stands with them. But they haven't entered the trial. This is the mark, by the way, of mature Christianity versus immature Christianity. If we never get past looking at the sufferings on this level of life, we'll never be prepared for where we should be. That's the mark of a true Christian. I want you to take some time with this. And go before the Lord. If you can see in your own life deficiencies in faith, if you can see in your own life that you've been living simply or looking simply on a lower level and not excelling to where Christ would want us to be, confess that to Because God is good. He does care for us. And He wants the best for us. He reserves those sweetest of truths for those who are obedient to walk in it. I love thinking of this point. It was the day after the trial that the Lord stood in your call. You must go in to the furnace. Take some time and go before the Lord. Father, we humbly confess to you that we are not at all who we should be in Christian maturity, in Christian practice, in Christian thinking. We fall far short. And I want to pause for myself and for our church, Lord, to ask you to be gracious and merciful to us, Lord, forgive us. You're the author and perfecter of our faith. You've laid down for us perfect example. You suffered in the flesh and you suffered in the spirit. You walked about hungry and homeless and you also walked about despised and rejected by men because of the truth. Father, help us to see past the sufferings of the flesh that we might enter into the joy of fellowship in your spirit. You're so equal, but you are strong, and we look to you. If we fail so often, Lord, and that you remain faithful, as Paul said, because you can't deny yourself. You've covenanted with us. You've bought us with a price, as Isaiah said. You have inscribed us on the very palm of your hands, Father. And the only inscription we've ever made on your palm was a nail strike. And you remain faithful. that humble us and yet confess draws in that we might walk as spiritually newborn people. There's so much you have waiting for us that we miss. God be merciful. Transform our heart and mind. We're about to build our life upon your word. Help us to walk in the life not living for ourselves, 
but testifying of you in every place, whether accepted or rejected. Father, where the Jews rejected it, you opened a new door of ministry to the Romans who received it. Help us not be discouraged if we're serving you in ministry at work that people reject us. Love them. Paul did with the Romans and even the Jews to build our life for to the house where your spirit is.